Good morning, as Rachel said, I'm Dan, and it's good to have you with us today. I wonder if you've ever been given any bad news. If you've lived long enough, you probably have received some bad news. Um, Sometimes we get bad news, which is for our good, though, isn't it? If you're fortunate enough to own a car, uh, then uh, perhaps you've had that bad news, that dreaded phone call when it's in for the MOT, and they ring you up, and they say about your car, and you need all the brakes repaired, all the tires replaced, it's falling apart, and it's going to cost you hundreds of pounds. Bad news. But it's for your good. If they didn't replace the brakes, if they didn't give you nice tires with good grips, well, then you'd crash, wouldn't you? So there you go, there's a happy thought. But bad news, it's for your good. Or perhaps more uh, seriously, uh, we can receive bad news of uh, maybe a life-threatening illness that we might be diagnosed with. But uh, if we get the news, the bad news, if we're warned about it, then maybe there's something that can be done. Maybe there's a cure. Maybe there's some way we can be helped. Well, as we return to uh, for our second look at the prophet Joel this morning, we might feel a little like a patient receiving that devastating news. It might not be comfortable, but please stick with what God has to say through the prophet Joel till the end. And I promise that after a bit of heavy negative things, I promise a joyful prospect after we've heard the hard-hitting warning. We saw last week that God has sent a great swarm of locusts which had wiped out the land. The nation was paralyzed. The destruction was on a scale like they'd never seen or heard of before. They had no, uh, their disruption of their crops meant they had no food to eat. But the greater danger was not their starvation, but the fragile state of their relationship with the Lord, their God. The daily offerings were cut off from the temple. And the, the covenant, the promise that God had made with them was under question. The people were in despair, weeping, wailing, mourning, grieving. And uh, as verse 12 of chapter 1 captured it, surely the people's joy is withered away. I, just, I said verse 12. Uh, we use the Bible here. We like to teach from the Bible. And uh, in the Bible, when you look at Joel, we're looking at the prophet Joel. It's on page 912. We're looking at page 912, if you're using one of the Bibles in front of you. When I say verse 12, I'm referring to the small number, which is kind of higher up. And uh, when we say chapter numbers, that's the big numbers. So chapter numbers are the big numbers. Verse numbers are the small numbers. It just helps us find our way around. The people in, uh, who Joel was speaking to were broken by this catastrophic disaster. The prophet Joel spoke this uncomfortable truth that it was God himself who brought this disaster upon his people. They were receiving judgment from the Lord their God. And we saw the reason for this on two levels. First, the people's own rebellion. But secondly, God's goodness in warning his people of a much greater final judgment that was to come. And this is where we pick up Joel's message again today. Within those warning passages, Joel spoke of a day of the Lord. We saw that phrase, the day of the Lord, a day that was to come. It's there in chapter 1, verse 15. Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. And we saw it again in verse 1 of chapter 2. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble. 
for the day of the Lord is coming. And this day of the Lord is a major thread through Joel's prophecy, and for good reason. It has massive consequences for all of his hearers, and it has massive consequences for each one of us here this morning. You see, this day hasn't arrived yet. It's still to come in all of our futures. And Joel describes two things that this day will bring. On that day, we'll find ourselves in one of two positions. No one will be on the fence. No one will miss this. No one will escape it. This coming day of the Lord will bring one of two things for every one of us, no matter who we are. For some, the day of the Lord will bring judgment. For others, the day of the Lord will bring jubilee. I'll explain what that word means later. We'll explore both of those aspects of this day, and then we're going to answer the vital question, what determines how I will experience this day of the Lord? Will I be in that camp of judgment, or will I be in that camp of jubilee? We'll get to that at the end. So firstly then, the day of the Lord brings judgment. For some, the day of the Lord will bring judgment. And we saw last week that God was warning using this current swarm of locusts invading and destroying the land. He was using it as an alarm call, as a wake up to his people, a warning of this judgment that was to come. Take a look again at chapter 2 and verses 1 to 12. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn sweeping across the mountains. A large and mighty army comes. Such as never was in ancient times. Nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them fire devours. Behind them a flame blazes. Before them the land is like the garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry with a noise like that of chariots. They leap over the mountains like a crackling fire consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses. Like thieves, they enter through the windows. Before them, the earth shakes. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon are darkened, and the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? And if you had just had all that you own wiped out, all your food destroyed, all your crops destroyed, and you were in that state of despair that we saw last week, you'd begin to feel something of the warning that God is giving here. But it's developed further in chapter 3. Verses 1 to 16. And uh, here it talks about a place, Jehoshaphat, which means the Lord judges. 
and this, this valley of decision. There's going to be a judgment. There's going to be a decision made. In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, the Lord judges. There I will put them on trial for what they did to my inheritance, my people Israel. Because they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. They cast lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine to drink. It's disgusting, isn't it? And, and when we look at this, when we're thinking about what's going on, let's remember that God's judgment isn't without reason. God's judgment is sorting out all that's wrong in this world. And God goes on to ask what various nations have against him. And he carries on and says, see, I'm going to rouse them out of the places to which you sold them. I will return on your own heads what you have done. I will sell your sons and daughters to the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, a nation far away. The Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Rouse the warriors. Let all the fighting men draw near and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weakling say, I am strong. Come quickly, all you nations, from every side and assemble there. Bring down your warriors, Lord. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes, for the winepress is full, and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. In a moment we'll see just how shocking and horrific these verses are. We'll look at that in a moment, but just carry on in chapter 3. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will be darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble. And this isn't some isolated warning only taught by the prophet Joel. Isaiah and Zephaniah refer to the day of the Lord's wrath or the day of the Lord's anger. Amos refers to it as a day of darkness. Ezekiel, Lamentations, Obadiah, all warn of this day. And these warning passages are not any lighter elsewhere either. I'm going to spare you and just read you two more. But Isaiah chapter 13 says this, Wail for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this all hands will go limp. Every heart will melt with fear. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at each other. Their faces aflame. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. I will make people scarcer than pure gold, more rare than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. And I realize that this is uncomfortable. I don't feel comfortable reading it, but it's important that we hear it. 
And there's this graphic picture in the last book of the Bible, in Revelation, which picks up Joel's language in in chapter 3 of this sickle and this winepress. It's uh, found in Revelation chapter 14. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had a charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Sometimes people mistakenly think that the God of the Old Testament is, the God of the New Testament is somehow different from the God of the Old Testament. That the God of the Old Testament is the baddie, the one who bangs on about judgment. But the God of the New Testament is, is the big softy, uh, or at least he's more reasonable and less angry, less moody. That's a load of rubbish. Did you listen? Did you get what's going on, what's being described in those verses in Revelation? It's a violent and graphic picture. If it was a video game, it would be a Peggy 18 The symbolic language of Revelation is describing the judgment of God extending to all people everywhere. All people who haven't sought refuge in God. And in chapter 19 of Revelation, we're told that it's Christ himself who treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Let's not be guilty of domesticating God or domesticating his word. Let's not package him up as someone different to who he says he is. Let's not peddle some message which is different to that which he has spoken. Judgment isn't some little detail in the small print that we can overlook. Judgment is a dreadful reality that the world needs to be warned about. And it's not loving not to give that warning. That's, uh, I think, enough on the day of the Lord bringing judgment. But secondly, and much more happily and positively, the day of the Lord brings jubilee. For some, the day of the Lord will bring judgment, but for others, the day of the Lord will bring jubilee. Or to be more precise with our language, we could say that it brings judgment that results positively, positively in jubilee. It's not that some are left off the hook, It's not that God turns a blind eye in his approach to judgment. He doesn't judge some people and then let other people off, let them through. Nor is he corrupt. Judgment will will come. Justice will be upheld. And yet the truth remains that the result of judgment for some people will be jubilee. We'll see how this is possible and just in our third section. But for now, let's just discover some of the highlights 
of this alternative outcome of Jubilee. What even is Jubilee? What do I mean by that word? Uh, Obviously, I've chosen it because it starts with a J. But um, quick and simple definition, we could think of it as, as as a Bible word. It talks about a time of celebration, a time of liberation and rest. And uh, the, the image that it carries is one of liberation and rest for the whole of creation. And I'm using it to capture the relief of the people's starvation and the end of their despair and suffering. And you see this in passages like chapter 2, verses 18 to 27. Then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. The Lord replied to them, I'm sending you grain, new wine, and olive oil. What was dried up last time, do you remember? Grain, wine, oil. God's sending new wine and olive oil and grain, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. I will drive the northern horde far from you, pushing it into a parched and barren land. That's not against northerners, by the way. That's just referring to those who had attacked God's people. That doesn't reply to people north of Watford. Um, its eastern ranks will drown in the Dead Sea and its western ranks in the Mediterranean Sea and its stench will go up, its smell will rise. Surely he has done great things. Do not be afraid, land of Judah. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Do not be afraid, you wild animals, for the pastures in the wilderness are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their riches. Be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains because he is faithful. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locusts and the young locusts, the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God, who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. And so we hear that we have this, this great, fantastic hope that's held out to God's people, to all who are trusting in him. That this day of the Lord for them won't be this gloom and judgment and, and terror, but this day of the Lord will bring in this age of blessing, of liberation, of abundance, of, of an end to all our suffering, all our pain, of renewal of all things. It's a joyful hope. And the day of the Lord will not only affect people, but it affects the whole of creation. We saw fairly recently here in Romans chapter 8 how the, the creation groans with eager longing for this day. Because the creation itself as well is restored. The creation itself receives liberation from the bondage to decay that it currently suffers. And then we see in chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, as it continues, another aspect to this day. And as we read these verses, some of you might think, oh, I've heard these before. Uh, And you'll be thinking perhaps of Acts chapter 2. We'll look at that a bit later. And we see, in part, these verses have begun to be fulfilled. But also, they are about this day, about this time at the end. And afterward, chapter 2, verse 28, 
And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Blood and fire and billows of smoke, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. From Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. We'll think about those verses a bit later, but again, just skip to chapter 3, verses 16 to 21. But the Lord will be a refuge for his people. Rachel helpfully um, helped us think about that a bit earlier. A stronghold for the people of Israel. Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. In that day, the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. Just picture this abundance, this blessing, the richness. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of Acacias. But Egypt will be desolate, Edom a desert waste, because of violence done to the people of Judah, in whose land they shed innocent blood. Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem throughout all generations. Shall I leave their innocent blood unavenged? No, I will not. The Lord dwells in Zion. Did you notice, I realize that the verse that I read might be slightly different to you, but we'll ignore that for now. Did you notice that, um, especially where the Lord is in this picture? Take a look again at verse 17. I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. That is, he dwells, he lives with and among his people. Or again in verse 21, the Lord dwells in Zion. And we've seen something of the richness, something of the abundance of the flowing wine and milk and crops and just everything you could want and imagine. We've seen that richness. But, you know, this is the best thing about this jubilee. The best thing is that the Lord's people will be with their God and he will live with them, his dwelling place with us. You know that that climax, that picture in Revelation of there will be no temple. There will be no temple because the Lord himself lives among his people. We're going to uh, sing a song at the end of our gathering this morning, which really is picking up this hope and celebrating this day and thinking about just the liberation and the fullness and the blessings we're going to receive Uh, But I won't spoil that for you. You can uh, realize that later on when we come to it. But finally, and uh, briefly want to think about the third question. For some, the day of the Lord will bring judgment. But for others, the day of the Lord will bring jubilee. Finally, what determines how I will experience this day of the Lord? All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this is the straightforward Uh, answer supplied in verse 32 of chapter 2. Do take a look at that again. Chapter 2, verse 32. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. From Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. That's odd. There's going to be survivors. People who won't be wiped out 
by this dreadful day of the Lord. There will be deliverance. That is, some will be rescued. Some will be saved. We talk about saving in different ways today. Some of us save money in banks. Those of us who are uh, perhaps a lot better off save money in hedge funds or whatever. I wouldn't know about that. But uh, saving ourselves for pudding. wouldn't know about that either because uh, I can manage both. But, um, or, or saving a goal in football. Actually, I don't know about this either. Saving a goal in football um, is something some of us might do. But here the language of saving is about being rescued from danger. Being delivered safely from harm. The danger, is that people, the danger that people are rescued from is the danger of the day of the Lord, all that we've already read and thought about this morning. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, if you're actually listening to this, you might be thinking at least two questions uh, that this verse raises. How do I call on the name of the Lord? What does that mean? And how is that just? How could it be right that some face the wrath of God and others are spared? How is that just? Well, let's think about the second question first. How is that just? How could it be right that some face the wrath of God and others are spared? And the problem is that we realize we are part of the problem. Deep down, we all know that if all that is wrong in this world needs to be dealt with. We know that this includes us. We might not see it like that straight away. We agree that people who murder 38 people on the beach need sorting out. We agree that justice should be served on, on someone who stabs a man to death for presumably accidentally driving into the back of his car. Those cases are easy for us to stand in judgment on. But when we try and draw the line on all that's wrong in this world, sooner or later, we realize that we're part of the problem. I've hurt people, maybe not physically, but definitely emotionally. For some people, I am part of the problem. And yet, our horizontal relationships aren't our biggest problem. Our broken relationships with other people do have consequences. But the greater problem is our broken relationship with God. Uh, Another prophet in the Old Testament, prophet Isaiah, captured this problem memorably when he said, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And so it is that not one single person can stand in the judgment of God. No one is righteous, as the Bible puts it elsewhere. No one is right before him. How then is it just that some are saved. Isaiah continues, We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah's words were fulfilled hundreds of years later after he spoke them when Jesus, the one whom Isaiah was speaking of, when Jesus went to his death on the cross. And as he hung there, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. On the Alpha course, uh, there's this uh, picture that we use that we imagine that uh, this book perhaps is, represents all of our sin, all of my rebellion, all that's in the way between me and God. And uh, here's Jesus. He's sinless. He's perfect. He's the Son of God. He has no sin, no rebellion to separate him. 
And we illustrate the, the truth that Isaiah is talking about by saying, on the cross, Jesus takes our sin upon himself. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so we, we can experience this day of the Lord as jubilee. We have our sin taken away, removed from us, and God is just to forgive us. Iniquity in uh, these verses from Isaiah is another word for our sin, our rebellion against God, all that stands between us and God, all that would make the day of the Lord a terrifying day for us. But the amazing message from God in the Bible is that Jesus came willingly and bore the judgment, the punishment that all who call on him deserve. The us all in Isaiah is everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So God is just to save some. Even though they deserve to be condemned. Because the Lord Jesus was condemned in their place. And so they are no longer guilty. Justice is upheld. The question remains then, how do I call on the name of the Lord? Well, a good place to start would be those verses in chapter 2 of Joel that we thought about last week. Verses 12 to 13. Even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, break your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. We must first recognize and admit that our hearts are far from God. We've gone after other things. Maybe some of us haven't obviously worshipped other gods, whether that's the single person god of Islam or one of, the early, one of the gods from the early writings of Hinduism or Brahman. Others, others of us have set our hearts on more subtle alternatives to God, as we considered last week. Either way, we all need to turn to the one true God, the gracious and compassionate Lord of the Bible. Maybe today for the first time, you'll call on the name of the Lord and be saved. You know who he is. You've discovered him in the Bible where he's made himself known to you. You recognize your need of salvation, of refuge. You believe that Jesus stands in your place in judgment, that he bore the punishment that you deserve. And so you call out to the Lord, Lord, please save me through the life and death of Jesus. I think it's that simple. I think it's that simple. But let's be clear. There's no other way. There's no one else who can take your place in the judgment. Either Christ stands in your place or you do. Either Christ stands in your place or you fall in it. Salvation is found in no one else, Acts says, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Uh, we must move on. Uh, but uh, just quickly to mention, these verses ought to remind those of us who are calling on the name of the Lord for salvation that we have a part to play in God's mission to rescue people. And if you're in this category, uh, then please take a look at Romans chapter 10 uh, and read from verse 13 later on this afternoon in your own time, not now because I'll get told off. Um, but uh, do have a look at that and see the challenge there, the part that we need to play in this. And ask yourself the question, how beautiful are your feet looking today? How beautiful are your feet looking? That will make sense when you look at Romans 10.
So, the word of the Lord spoken through the prophet Joel was clearly on the minds of the first disciples of Jesus at the birth of the early church. The book called Acts and New Testament part of the Bible perhaps recalls the first Christian preach after Jesus had returned to his father. So I'm going to finish by reading uh, bits of that message. Uh, And as I do, notice how those words spoken through Joel have begun to be fulfilled. But as you do, as you notice this, that they've begun to be fulfilled, remember that they will all come to pass on the final day. There's a now and a not yet. They've begun to be fulfilled, but they will be fully fulfilled on that final day. And ask yourself the question, are you ready? I'm reading from Acts chapter 2, verse 14, if you want to follow, but please don't feel you need to. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Now this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. People had seen some of these things going on. That was what was raising the questions. And now Peter goes on to explain some of what they've seen. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Jumping to verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Verse 36, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? What shall we do today? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Which direction? Are you heading? Which direction am I heading? What will my experience of the day of the Lord be? Will I face judgment in fear and trembling? Or will I enter into the joy of Jubilee 
as I pass safely through judgment, hidden in Jesus my Savior. Let's pray. Our Father, we've heard some difficult words from uh, your message through Joel this morning, and, and we find them hard to hear. But we thank you that though this message is hard, and though we might not have everything resolved in our minds as we think about the whole issues of judgment, we thank you that that need not be what we face. We thank you that our Lord Jesus did come and has taken our place. And we thank you that Joel's words still ring truer than ever, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Thank you that your plea to us to return to you with all our hearts still stands, that your offer of life remains open. And we thank you that for all who call on your name, for all who cry out to you for salvation and refuge, we thank you that we have this most glorious hope of blessing, yes, of, of abundance and plenty and uh, great things like milk. And we thank you for that. But we thank you above that for the blessing, the privilege that we have of being with you, of being your people, and of you living with us as our God. Please would you help us to cry out to you today, to call on your name for salvation. And please would you help us to look forward, to fix our eyes on this hope of jubilee. 